0: Hi guys, it's Annie McDonald, physio and strength and conditioning coach, and welcome to the Informed Performance Podcast. On today's show, I have Ian Gatt, the GB Boxing Head of Performance Services, aka the Head of Sports Science and Medicine. In this episode with Ian, we'll be discussing his work, his role, and his current research that he's undertaking. We'll also be discussing profiling the modern boxer, aligning athlete and staff objectives, and load management in boxing. This episode of the Informed Performance Podcast has been sponsored by VOL Performance, makers of the Force Frame. Used by health and performance professionals for assessing and improving performance and rehabilitation, the Force Frame is a powerful solution for quickly and accurately testing isometric strength and imbalances. In addition to testing athletes, the Force Frame is also used to maintain and improve strength, offering over 130 isometric training protocols. As a portable and easy-to-use system, the Force Frame is designed to ensure every measurement can be accurately and reliably measured, time after time again. To learn more about the Force Frame, visit our sponsor, volperformance.com. You're listening to Inform Performance with me, Andy McDonald, and let's get into today's episode between myself and Ian Gatt. Ian, welcome to the show, mate. It's,
1: uh, it's great to have you on. Uh, thanks, Andrew. Thanks for having us
0: would you just be able to kind of outline your background and kind of bring us up to date to your current role, kind of tell us about your uh, professional story, mate?
1: Yeah, so I've been uh, 20 years and going now, um, working as a sports physiotherapist, Um, graduated in Malta, that was my home country, Uh, then left, went over to Greece, spent five years over there, and then You know, came over to the UK initially to do some further studies and obviously considered my future as a career. And then I ended up staying here, especially with London being announced um, as the Olympic Games for 2012. And I thought, you know, it'd be nice to go there. And um, luckily... Or fortuitously, I ended up going with GB Boxing in London 2012. Uh, I've been with them for the last 10 years. Uh, sorry, more than that. Now it's 12 years. I've been with the EIS, the English Institute of Sport, for the last 14. The nice thing is I've, I've been, you know, the head physiotherapist for boxing for quite a while now. And in the last let's say two to three years now, I've even taken this role of head of performance, where I help coordinate um, all the support team you know we've got eight disciplines between sports science and medicine so it's it's nice to be able to uh, uh, look at certain things projects research align things together but also to help facilitate uh, where possible
0: in the uh in the you, you mentioned that you're the head of performance for british boxing in the kind of entourage of a top flight boxer who's who's in that sort of mdt and how do you as the head of performance kind of Encourage that everybody collaborates effectively and gets on the same page.
1: yeah, it depends what the boxer needs really, so it's almost like you know having that the toolbox and you see what you need for the particular boxer. I think on a day to day basis, you know the boxer might be using most of the services. Um, obviously a GB boxing privilege because you've got eight disciplines, you know, if I had to name them, you've got physio and doctors, you've got your performance analysis, you've got nutrition, you've got psychology, performance, lifestyle, physiology and strength and conditioning. So within all that, you probably contribute to different um, areas around every boxer. But then when we think about what does a boxer need more, so you're individualising what they need rather than just having that that, uh, blank canvas for everybody, particularly your priority boxes now as we move towards the Olympic Games um, in the summer of this year, You think, what does a boxer need more? Do they need more support around areas of technical or tactical, where we can support the coaches through analysis? Is it more around areas of nutrition and, you know, how to to better make weight, how to better fuel themselves um, between rounds and as they get towards the fights? Is it some other elements around, you know, how to manage pressure? And so obviously psychology comes into play or even how to manage their lifestyle. Is it more an injury point of view? So you might have like, you know, three or four people coming more together, almost like a little team with the coach for one athlete and other members going to another or some some disciplines sort of crossing over. And you, you would see the same even in your know, top flight boxers and professional. So it, almost like, the demand that is required and sort of starts fulfilling those roles rather than you just get a role just for the sake of it. Um, and I think at the end of, uh, of, of the day, that helps because if you, have, if you have a team, and particularly what you need to make sure is you have a cohesive team. It's not just about having, you know, let me just use uh, some disciplines. You, you could have physio, you could have strength and conditioning, you could have a doctor, you could have a nutritionist, but if everybody is, is pulling their own way, if everybody's doing their own thing, thinking, you know, that is my role, so I do this. It doesn't help. It's when it comes all together. And we know, for example, from a medical physio point of view, you know, it's useless. You just try and do your bit without, you know, the, the coaching assisting with, you know, the, the loading elements of things, without the athlete buying into certain strategies. And um, sometimes actually they are influenced through strength and conditioning because there are aspects of warm up that go into there. There are aspects of how he trained before he gets into like the, the proper preparation of a fight. So it is making sure that you work as a team together, and one person feeds off the other, and ultimately, that you, you you're you you good friends. You know you're good colleagues. That people that you want to be around also. So it's it's not just about a job a role. It's about enjoyment too. So you know that the team comes together. Um, in fact, even today, you know, is you know texting a few colleagues. You know, it's just nice when we just talk banter. You know, talk about certain things. Oh, you know, be good to see you tomorrow. Stuff like that. It just shows that. That there is that that um, aspect of friendship. Sometimes it goes beyond just the professional element of what the role is.
0: Mm-hmm. Obviously, in um, you know in sports like uh, football and rugby, the sort of athletes themselves have tended to come through kind of like academy systems, and so you know increasingly from an early age now they're used to sports science, they're used to strength and conditioning, uh, physio, they're used to kind of our modern uh, methods. How? How does that kind of compare to boxing? Do the fighters come through, you know, nowadays with kind of more exposure to this stuff? Or is there still this kind of romantic, tough boxing training culture before they get to you guys?
1: I think it's changed. Um, Sports science and medicine has come late to the party. Um, when you think about it, you know the coaches were always the guys that did everything. Um, you know, if you look at, even at the films, the old Rocky films, it was probably that is the, the thing. Is that you have the coach that helps with the injury, the, the coach that does the conditioning part, the coach that advises on nutrition. You know, so that that has always been the case. Um, but obviously, since the establishment of of the, the the international aspects of say GB boxing and the home nations. That sports science and medicine element has come in. And I think obviously we've we've learned what boxing means. We still know that there is that balance between it's an art, is it? There's a subjectivity of what a coach sees. And we're trying to learn that to try and assist, uh, provide some basis of science to what they're seeing. But it's not, it's, it's not as simple, it's not as linear. This is not what we class as a linear sport where you know somebody getting stronger is gonna be better in the ring sometimes you know the strongest boxer in the in the weights room could be the worst boxer so there's not that direct correlation so we need to be careful also what we're saying you know just by making everybody strong doesn't mean they're just going to perform automatically so when you look at the club level system i think when i started Pretty much there wasn't there wasn't anything, I'd say. Um, but I think as time has gone on, people now, you know, even seeing what GB Boxing does and maybe what, what happens in the international world, they even look at top flight professional boxers and the entourage they have. I think people are starting to seek that a bit more. You know, so you, predominantly you start with maybe a physiotherapist and the link to a private practice or the physio goes in and does some sessions at club level. But then, you know, they'll seek out psychologists or nutritionists, strength and conditioning coaches, you know, even if they're personal trainers, you know, um, relatively the same thing with a different name. So I think that is filtering through. And I think because of that, it'll help because the amateur boxers, hopefully by the time they join us at GB, have had that exposure. Uh, maybe not as condensed, maybe not so many people. But it's nice that they start having a bit of that. Um, and then equally even if you know people bypass that system and go professional hopefully they get that flavor of it because i think any boxer or any athlete who wants to succeed it's good that they have a level of support whatever it is and whatever uh, contextually uh, makes sense for them yeah
0: and by the law of averages most people listening will be perhaps more familiar with profiling team sports athletes looking at things like running or or maybe in kind of overhead and throwing-based sports uh, stateside. As someone working at the very top end of combat sports, uh, an area many people have less exposure, how do you how do you kind of go about profiling a, a fighter? You obviously mentioned a few things that feed into that a minute ago, but, but yeah, how do you probably profile a boxer?
1: Yeah, so, I mean, profiling is always a big word because, you know, I think everybody's looking for the... T- um for the sacred grail of if I do this we're going to prevent injuries and it doesn't it's not the reality is it you know there's nothing out there that says that what you, you're finding can help with that but what you're doing in a profiling system is trying to make sure you've got some baseline measures to fall back on and also particularly with your um, top flight boxers or your you know, your at-risk people, the ones that have uh, repetitive injuries, for example, in certain areas, or the ones that are at more risk in certain areas, those are the ones you probably want to look at the, the numbers that you're getting from there. But when you're looking at profiling, it's not dissimilar from your other sports. What I mean by that is, you know, we tend to do a multidisciplinary approach towards profiling, so it's not isolated. Um, we've got better year after year on what we're looking at. But you look at the conditioning parts, you know, how fast can a boxer run, which is part of their conditioning. You're looking at strength measures in certain areas. You look at range of motion in some key areas, particularly, uh, but then also the things to consider are, Medical, you know, you know, you do your scat test as a concussion baseline. You do your your medical um, history just to make sure everything is fine. Performance, lifestyle, and psychology. Sometimes you know we forget those really important because we we get certain aspects to see their their readiness. To, uh, to almost train and compete over the next few months. So I think it's important to know anything that could be hindering that. We do mental health questionnaires also, which are very important nowadays and see if anything gets highlighted, which needs further discussion between the medical and the doc. And then very important areas for me is we've done eye screening particularly in boxing, to see if there is any visual acuity, but also any damage to retinas. Luckily, over the years, we've seen nothing of, of uh, significance to, to, to worry. Um, and I'd say last but not least, there are probably a few other things, but is dental health, oral health, because uh, people forget the importance of it. So obviously, you've got the, the oral health itself, and the link with systematic illnesses. So the the quicker you can pick on those things, the better it is for the health of the boxers. But also in a sport like boxing is having those bespoke gum shields to make sure you don't get those traumas. So I think when we look at profiling, there are aspects of prevention that we can prevent. You can actually put your, you know, nail your hat on really, which is um, looking at, you know, those gum shields, looking at illnesses, looking at certain things where, you know, straight away, you can diminish certain things but also is the fact that you're speaking with the boxer and from the get-go i think you're getting that relationship and asking questions and saying okay look this is what you should be looking over the next few weeks the next few months come and see us tomorrow come and see us later on for example um so i think i really enjoy that obviously we've struggled probably in the beginning of this year to do it because of COVID, of cross infection but what a lot of the practitioners did was they we ended up almost doing like a bit of a silo approach, uh, taking athletes in their different departments. Um, but we managed to do that quite nicely. In fact, I think what was it last week? We did um, the the oral health screening, which ideally would have done in January, but we did it last week. And obviously, we're we're aiming to move forward with that.
0: Pretty mixed picture. Then sounds very interesting from a medical perspective when you put in those factors as well. Um, one of the things I wanted to ask you is how do you kind of uh, assess and monitor load in combat sports? Um, You know, we're obviously always obsessed with load, Um, (laughs) but yeah, how do you kind of monitor it in a, in a combat sport and especially boxing?
1: Yeah, it's not easy and it is evolving. Um, I think because we're working with squads I think, I'm not going to say it's easier, but we have probably a bit more of a contained scenario. It's the same as you would be in a, in a football club or a rugby club where you have that sort of week in, week out of certain elements of consistency. So, you know, our physiologist does a great job because he collects the rounds um, from the coaches. So we get the volume and that volume gets um, written up and disseminated uh, week in, week out. So we, are, we appreciate what are the loads um, going on the different aspects of training, you know, sparring, open, technical, bags, pads, those sort of thing, And obviously, if you have those spikes, then it's interesting to see what happens to the athletes. So, you know, if there are spikes, um, do they actually do get worse or is it just, you know, they actually could colorate those things uh, we're still looking at intensity levels but you know it's there are lots of things you can look at you can look at um, your heart rate monitors you can look at RPE so you know your your um, you, you, your own um, I, I forgot I forgot what that means now um, your perceived exertion so <laughs> um, so you're it's obviously giving a rating of how hard the session was but I think sometimes even that cannot be easy. So I think at the moment we're still working on what we believe um, can be of most importance. The other thing we collect, which can link with loading, but I think sometimes can be a little bit more important on a day-to-day basis, is wellness monitoring. So we collect the wellness of athletes, where they tell us, you know, their mood, their motivation, how they slept, um, do they have any illnesses? Do they have any injuries? So by collecting this information, straight away, we can act on it by, you know, telling the the whole team, the whole sports science and medicine, this was being collected, this was come up. And then it's nice to see those conversations going on. I don't know, maybe the psychologist goes, okay, I'll... I'm going to speak with the athlete later on, or the physio goes, Yeah, we know about that, but we'll catch with that athlete later on. Um, and that for me is really, really powerful because you can see from a day to day, you can pick those things. So, although sometimes it's not the loathing in itself, it could be a reaction to the training. So, that in itself could be a bit of a supplement measurement of. Intensity, maybe, but actually, it's really it's how the athlete is reacting to the week. And we have to remember, you know, the intensity might be good, the training load might be good, but the athlete may be not good in in themselves. There may be other factors going outside from the uh, from the walls of the sport, which you can't measure inside the sport. You can only talk about. And so, by asking those questions, even from a simple. You know, few second questionnaire where you're asking every day the athlete how they are it just opens that conversation so I think it's how it's how we use data but in a meaningful manner rather than just having lots and lots and lots of data and then you say yeah well we'll look at the data every six months and we you know do something about it it's almost like can we do something about it every day and make it meaningful
0: Beyond the sort of um, the more systemic and uh, kind of wellness and IPE driven measures for for how the athlete's doing, is there value in boxing and looking at kind of any specific musculoskeletal, um, you know, session costs perhaps? Or is there any kind of limb segments that you want to profile that uh, give you valuable information from an injury risk perspective?
1: Yeah, and again, you know, even there's that's a lot of that where we um, I think there are segments of those where we've worked on so for example you know particularly with athletes that have certain elements of chronicity or recurrences we use uh, isokinetic dynamometry that gives us some good information we will look at ratios um, we do um, s and regularly do jump tests so we have performance measures looking at your drop jumps and your CMJs. Uh, we do sprints. So you do your uh, your 1K, 3K uh, intensity efforts. And we do these regularly, particularly as we're getting close to competitions as a performance measure. But then we, at the same time, we're also working at um, particularly upper limb uh, measures. I know um, we're probably close to publishing um, a study that we did around actually a CMJ using the uh, like a a, a bench uh, um, push or like a like a press up type situation and actually looking at the difference between left and right platforms and it, there was good reliability um, and validity in that study. So hopefully it's some things that we can carry on because it'd be good to then to quantify your upper limb, lower limb, and start getting those total total scores. Uh, other things which we can use, the only problem you have is if you use too many in the gym, you can get what is known as crosstalk, which means that the information you get can be a bit, um, not as accurate as you would like it to be, because obviously the the equipment starts sort of interfering with one another, is your accelerometers. So you can put accelerometers inside the glove and you can get velocities and you can get, uh, you can even get accelerations if you want. But one of the important things also is getting that punch count. So knowing how much have you done with your left, how much have you done with your right, spread it over a week, spread it over weeks, then you know what is the the volume that you're getting from that particular person. So obviously if somebody is struggling or if somebody gets these repetitive problems or if somebody's coming back from a long-term injury or post-operation, it's good then that you can almost like, as you're integrating them, you could have the rounds, you could have an expression subjectively of intensity, but then you can have the number of, punches because you know if we gave three threes to somebody so three rounds three minutes to somebody and then we did the same session the following way have they thrown exactly the same punches probably no so you know just by having that on its own sometimes can be a different parameter even with the heart rate itself it doesn't mean that they're you know if you're moving around and not throwing a punch you're just moving around a lot so the intensity might be high so then you need that other variable which can be obviously number of shots so we we do we do use other metrics other parameters i think it's making sure that when you use it you try and use it in a meaningful way rather than just having tons and tons and tons of data i'm just hoping to find something you can see what i mean put it into uh, one of these mega computers and they start churning numbers because i know even in football they do a lot of that and they still don't have any answers um so you know if they were doing all that and they were coming up with this you know this holy grail of something i think great all right well they're onto something but at the moment it's it's not really as crystal clear as
0: obviously with um you know in field sports with gps you could have uh, a lower distance covered or slower speeds and whether that's a field sport or basketball that could be you you could on first glance think it was an easy game but of course you know we now know more more so that that could be a game that was actually with more challenges and more intensity. With You mentioned accelerometers in boxing. Can they give you kind of like the intensity of the punch? Because I'm guessing, you know, lacing a heavy bag is not equal to, um, you know, maybe using pads or another type of boxing training. Can you kind of, you know, if no punches are equal, can you look at the different loads between uh, how you're boxing and what punches you're throwing?
1: Yeah, of course. Um, so obviously with the accelerometers, you can see what the different um arms the different limbs are doing and obviously the individual load but then you can see the total load that you come from that you're right in saying that um the different types of uh, training will give different things so obviously you know sparring in a way it's a bit more intense because you've got somebody in front of you and there's intensity it's not necessarily physiological from the sense of training effort it could be like a mental um aspect which sometimes we don't consider the fact that you have to hit somebody without getting hit. Whereas on a bagged session, yes, you could be throwing much more punches and that's that's the reality. You, you'll end up throwing sometimes even double the amount of punches. Um, your intensity sometimes can be even higher than in a in sparring session, but there's a difference in the sort of, I'd say almost the stress of the body. So you could talk about like increased stress from a hard point of view, but then you are f- forgetting the psychological stress of you are sparring with somebody um, in that aspect. The other thing you know, you mentioned GPS. Uh, one of the things we're looking at with our analysts, um, and it's you know something hopefully for the future, is looking at those movements which you talked about. So using overhead cameras and trying to get movements and patterns, and you know whether it is from a, a training load effort point of view, whether it is mechanistically looking at possibly injury patterns or from a performance point of view looking at you know where people spend most of the time I mean there's obviously you can open it to lots of things but we are looking at certain things which hopefully in the future might help answer certain questions or even just keep giving us more questions that maybe we didn't even think about.
0: Yeah and can you get the from a kind of physio with a physio hat on can you get the the sort of kinetics of how hard a punch is from the sensors as well, so that you can kind of start to understand load going through the hand, wrist, elbow, shoulder complex?
1: Uh you you well, you can to a certain degree because it's not it's not a dynamometer. Um so because it's an accelerometer, you can only see how fast it goes. Uh, you can do punch forces through dynamometers, you know, like wall-mounted ones. And there have been studies about that, which can tell you the values of, you know, your, your lead shot, whether it's a straight shot, whether it is a hook, your, your backhand. But I mean, we know that the backhand, um, your lead shot tends to be, so what we call the cross, tends to be the, the highest in Newtons, really. Um, and not surprising sometimes when you see some injuries that can happen at at uh, the hand and wrist. Why? Because of the amount of travel and what happens But the the problem you have is when you're using a a wall-mounted dynamometer, you lose what is known as ecological validity. You know, a boxer doesn't stand well. Sometimes they do stand actually in front of their opponent and just try and whack them. Um, so you, you you could imply that some do, but the reality if somebody's boxing well with a good style and everything, you know, you you are moving around and then you're hitting. And what you want to see is not the one-off punches or the three repetition punches or six repetition punches. You'd actually want to collect like that over a period of time. So with the accelerometers you could extrapolate it using calculations, but it's not as accurate. So I think you can get velocity, you can get acceleration, you can get number of punches thrown. Um, you can even through potential metrics, starting to understand the types of shots thrown. Was it a jab, was it a hook, was it an uppercut? Um, but and, and that gives you a good idea of things. But I think to get actual force, uh, you'd need to almost like to take it away from that although again technology keeps improving i know that uh, potentially, there are certain things which we might be considering in the pipeline. You know, so there are like pressure films that can be used, um, and whether you know they, they they actually have got to a stage or not, whether they can relay data straight away um, back to a computer. I know that in certain sports they're piloting um, gum shields that have accelerometers in them that potentially can give you that sort of the the force going obviously to their opponent in sparring. Then equally. Uh, hopefully giving you that sort of force that has been thrown so i think as technology gets better there's more opportunities to learn things as long as it's you know used for the right reason let me put it this way which for me still really is it athlete health or is it performance
0: yeah no it's fascinating um i'm aware you've done some research or you're doing some research can you tell me maybe what you're investigating and perhaps the backstory of what performance or clinical problems you're seeing that you know inspired the work
1: yeah so i'm doing uh, a phd in biomechanics looking at, at wrist kinematics or wrist movements um when when a boxer impacts so on impact what happens you're looking at the, the displacement and uh, you know it triggered it was triggered really from when i first started with boxing you know hands and wrist injuries were were the biggest um, one of the things I recognized was there was no consensus around bandaging. I saw what was happening at amateur level, and then I saw what was happening at professional level, different types of bandaging, different levels of support. Um, I know when we introduced uh, more taping in the training environment, the, the injuries reduced in training, uh, particularly, you know, my, my theory was you're restricting movements, Um you know, the, the inference was particularly around flexion, but we know that there is almost like a dart throwing motion that happens uh, around the wrist, so like a coupled movement. And that's recorded even in, in other sports and even in, in general lit- literature around wrist movements. So I think my research is, you know, one was to validate um, the, the methodology I was going to do, which we published the first paper, which looked at electromagnetic sensors and looking at whether that would be a valid and reliable tool which that was accepted for publication, I think, 2019. Uh, currently, I'm finalising uh, the second paper where we're looking at what other the movements that happen. Um, so hopefully, we'll get to a position where Hopefully we'll publish it or try and publish it within the next few months. Um, And that will be really good because there's really nice information over there, uh, which I think will be useful. And then hopefully we can do a futuristic study, which looks at by applying the tape, then what does it do? You know, does it actually reduce the movements as we have inferred? Um, But from what I've seen clinically, obviously, you know, and it's not just in boxing. I mean, lots of people work in different sports. You tape an ankle, you know, you reduce the motions. Your inference is that obviously you are restricting certain things, but usually we tend to do it more as a post-injury. In boxing, it's a pre-injury, and obviously, then if you do get injury, you still apply that same um, consensus to try and reduce symptoms or to use movement. But I think in boxing is definitely one of those sports where every single boxer has to protect their hands going in, whereas I don't think any other sport really, you know, will systematically. I don't know, tape both ankles for all the athletes that go in there or tape their shoulders for it. You see what I mean? So it's one of those sports where that almost taping element for me has really fascinated me and even, you know, how you wrap, how you bandage. So it's that, you know, art and science definitely uh, meeting each other.
0: Is uh, like a lateral ankle sprain one of the areas that you've kind of borrowed a lot of the ideology from in terms of literature?
1: I borrowed it from all joints really you know I think before I joined boxing I had you know a good uh, 10 years a whole decade underneath uh, my belt so I think it was a combination it was what as a physio have I been doing all these years what does taping somebody mean you know whether it was prophylaxis or post-injury what is happening in professional boxing so I looked you know what you know, different styles, you know, the Mexicans are this, the Americans are this. What are we doing here? Um, spoke to the coaches, spoke with the boxers, you know, try to get an understanding. And probably what I ended up doing is in that first, you know, six months to a year in the role, is trying to understand things. And then when I decided to try and implement a strategy, is see what that means. And in fact, um what was it, 2010? I think I spent about two to three months bandaging every single boxer, every single hand before they went into training. Um, And that was relentless. So I think, you know, (laughs) we probably had about 20 boxers at the time. So we had much less than we have now, I'll be honest. But that was about 40 40, um, boxers because obviously in those days, they just used to do the bandage. Using um, cotton bandage, which, which is what we see a lot of times in some international competitions in in in, um, in amateur boxing, unlike in the in the Olympic Games or the really major games, where they apply what is classed more as a, like a professional style. Um, but that changed over the years. When I first started, even that was just the amateur. But uh, so adding tape on top of that in training obviously made things really different Different, um, different for the boxers. Some of them say, oh, oh, it feels a bit tighter and everything. I say, yeah, it will be. And then everybody started loving it. And then people learned how to do it. And then, you know, it's almost become a process now when a boxer joins the program. We teach them that. And equally, we always send a physio way to competition and every boxer, tends to be bandaged by the physio uh, before they go into competition. So if you're a physio on GB Boxing, let me put it this way, um, you become a bit what is a catman really, um, which is bandaging the hands because that's part of the duty. You may or may not end up being in the corner as we see catmans and professional bouts, but definitely it's a big responsibility because you you wanna do a good job. If you don't do a good job, (laughs) the boxer's gonna rate you based on that. And they'll probably say you're a good physio, or excuse the language, you're a shit physio, just based on that. Um, so I think when I get somebody new on the program, I give them a bit of time before they they have that responsibility.
0: I think the the closest I've ever come to a cutman is probably rugby, where guys some guys want their their wrists taped up before playing. But you, <laughs> you know, from a from a hand, I know you teach on the hand and hand and wrist in sport. Do you do you consult or do you kind of get asked your opinion a lot in rugby teams where, you know, they do get kind of a fairly high level of uh, traumatic wrist injuries at times or wrist sprains?
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, you mentioned the hands and wrist; like, you know, it's become a, like a love affair for me. And the upper limb total, but the hands and wrists is that pretty much affinity. Hence, obviously, the PhD too. But um, within the English Institute of Sports, I sort of, um, I would say, lead. I'm the person, the go-to person that a lot of sports come to me. So I've seen both para sports and your Olympic sports. Uh, you've, I've seen, you know, water-based sports and racket-based sports, whatever it is. But equally, in, for the professional sports, they've contacted me a lot. So I've seen either it's tennis, you know, your LTA, um, been to lots of rugby clubs, done uh, CPDs for them, like four-hour CPDs talking about hands and wrists and what they can do and S&C and conditioning. Did the same with um, seeing a few goalkeepers in football because obviously, you know, football, you wouldn't think hands and wrists straight away till you have your goalkeeper mm. who needs that sort of thing. So uh, I've probably been privileged because with that, I've learned a lot. I've learned what well, are the injuries they incur what are the type of injuries, the mechanisms, um, what are the the, the things they struggle with. Um, So I think that's probably helped shape um, the courses I teach because probably the way I taught five, six years ago is different to now um, in that I've learned a lot over the years and I've learned, you know, what are the... What are those difficult things that people will encounter, and what are maybe those those um, those golden nuggets that people can look at from a simplistic point of view, rather than overcomplicating things too much?
0: I'm aware you've got to shoot in a minute, mate. But where's the where's the best place for people to follow you, and and also, I guess, have you got any courses coming up as well that people should turn their attention to?
1: Uh, definitely. So. Um, you can follow me on on social media. So you'll find me on Twitter um, under Ian Guts uh, Physio. You find me under the, you know the, I'm not going to call it a trade name, but you find me under the Boxing Physio. Um, that's what a lot of people know me as. You find me on LinkedIn and also obviously on instagram but particularly with courses and other bits and bobs a lot i'll I'll be doing on all these three platforms um courses coming up you know luckily i i tend to do a lot on different platforms so sometimes there are providers that have uh, like pre-recorded sessions that become part of their own uh, establishment you know i've done stuff with physio plus with physio network with trust me Ads. there's some free stuff also if you want um with uh, clinical edge you know three three podcasts over there which i always tell people go there because there's a lot of nice information it is under the name combat sports and hands and wrist but there's a lot which i talk about which sort of translates to other ones and then i do um definitely coming up we do with in collaboration with anchor uh, we're doing uh, a live and online um so it used to be a one day live before face to face but I'm conscious about that, you know, video fatigue. Let's call it like that. Um, so what, what I've created is half a day's worth of um, pre-course material, which includes um, me talking over presentations, which we provide to people three weeks before. Uh, they can see it in their own time and leisure, and it's available till a week after the the, the live event. So we use it half day. Yeah, a bit more teaching on certain things, but mainly discussion. I like to, you know, get the audience to engage rather than just sitting down and listening to me. So we've got one in March, which is now fully booked. Um, so that's nice positive that people have joined on that one. But we've got another one in May. Um so you know, that is coming up. Uh, that's well, it's advertised at the moment also. So, you know, people happily to join and hopefully we'll have a nice, nice um event.
0: Cool. No, yeah, I hope that goes well for you as well and, and goes ahead smoothly. And and we'll link out to everything you just mentioned as well. So um, Ian thank you so much for coming on and um, I could keep bugging you on hand and wrist questions but <laughs> I think you've got to get off uh, no thanks for coming on mate
1: uh, thank you very much Andrew
0: big thanks to Ian for coming on the show I've really enjoyed the conversations I've had with him recently and I appreciate the insight he gave us into a sport that I think many of us perhaps know less about from a work or technical standpoint just want to draw your attention to our news at Informed Performance. We are now allowing listeners who work or have an influence on elite sport to send us articles to be posted and read on our informperformance.com website. We just started this with an article from Dr. Carl Wells from Sheffield United on the importance of strategic leadership within physical performance support. Head to the site to read this article. And if you'd like to host your own articles on our site, then don't hesitate to get in touch. That's all for today's episode. Thanks for listening to the Informed Performance podcast with me, Andy McDonald. Catch us next week for more performance and sports medicine insights.